I went to McDonald's the other day with the kids, and that can only mean one thing. The ladies' Christmas coffee was happening at my home. And uh, so Dad takes the kids to McDonald's, and I sent a text out to some of the guys, you know, hey guys, I'm at McDonald's, anybody want to join me with their kids? And none of you, get, none of you men showed up. So you left me there all alone. But uh, I was at McDonald's, and Mallory, we were getting in the car, and Mallory says, my tootie, my tootie, which obviously means my tutu. And uh, she has this tutu, and I, I won't wear it, or, or, but I'll try to describe it. It's this, you know, ballerina type garment that they, you know, nice and fluffy, and it goes all around her waist, and she's got two or three of these, what she calls a tutie. And uh, so I go back into the house, and I grab her tutie, and I bring it on back and throw it in the car, and I'm like, you know, I'm, she's not wearing that at McDonald's. But uh, sure enough, we get to McDonald's, and we're, we're walking in, and she's like, my tutie, my tutie. I'm like, okay, so I kind of stuff it in a bag, and we walk into McDonald's, we order our breakfast, we get to the Playland, and, uh, you know, she's asking for it, asking for it, my tutie. No, Mallory, you know, we don't wear a tutie in McDonald's. It's not... This is dad here. This is not mom. Would you believe it? While we're playing in the playland at McDonald's, two girls walk in with tutis on. And Mallory points at them and it's like, my tootie! My tootie! So finally I have to pull it out and I, I put her in this thing and she runs up to the girls and she goes... I won't ever do that again, I promise. She just, she, she just, she, she wanted everybody to see it. She had her tutti on. And she came back to me and she, she showed me and I clapped and said, oh my goodness, you're so beautiful. And she spun around and did her dance and her and the two little girls played in their tutis at McDonald's yesterday. Why do I bring this up? Well, um, I'm reminded uh, so much of how a daughter in particular, a daughter wants nothing more than the attention and admiration of her father. Amen? That's what daughters crave. And you know, I had brought the tootie into McDonald's, but it wasn't until she actually put it on and could show it to me and show it in all her glory. And I looked and I applauded and I said, you're so beautiful, Mallory. It wasn't until that moment that things were right for her. Because she, as a woman and as a daughter, needed her father's attention and admiration. You know, God is a lot like that toward us. He is a God who notices us. The title of my message today is part two of our little Christmas series. Christmas, it really is our story. Part two, the God who notices. And you'll notice a picture there in the background. I'm going to explain that picture at the end of the service. But today's message is about a God who notices. Just as a father needs to take note of his daughter and pay attention to her and tell her she's beautiful and admire her, so also our God in the story of Christmas is a God who took note of people time and time again, particularly took note of women in the story of Christmas. We're going to look at three women today. We're going to see how He took note of Mary, how God took note of Elizabeth, and how God took note of a woman named Anna. But first, let's come to the person of Mary. 
And this is actually a painting uh, by uh, El Greco is his name. He is a 16th century medieval artist and a beautiful, beautiful painting of Mary. And this first section is about how God noticed Mary, who I'm calling the insignificant woman. So on your outline there, the insignificant woman was Mary. We already learned last week that Mary was a woman of very insignificant means. She was poor. And that was evidenced by the offering that she gave in the temple. When Jesus was dedicated in the temple and when Mary brought her offering, she brought, Luke described it, two turtle doves or two pigeons. And that was the offering of a poor woman, of a poor family. Because a family with means would have brought a lamb to the, temp- to the temple that day. But Mary brought two turtle doves. But not only that, not only was she a woman of insignificant means, but she was a woman from insignificant origins. You see, Mary was from Nazareth. From Nazareth. And if you know anything about Nazareth, you know that it wasn't uh, well uh, respected among the Jews. Take a look at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 45. Philip, these are the disciples now. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to Philip, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. You know, we're all um, brought up in different families, right? Uh, Some of us are from the city. Some of us are from the country. Some of our families have money. Some of us are dirt poor. Some of us uh, come from families that we're really proud of. And others of us come from families that we think, wow, I'm related to that person. You know? The point is that God is no respecter of persons. And He is no respecter of origins. He's no respecter of persons and He's no respecter of origins. So whether you grew up in a loving and godly home or whether you experienced a lot of pain and sadness as a child, remember that good things come out of even Nazareth. You see, in Bible times, Nazareth was a place, it was a scandalous town. There were a lot of crooks in that town. And so when Philip said that, said to Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Nathaniel was like, what are you talking about? That's not possible. I've used it, the illustration before that's like saying Jesus is from Watts. We think, what? Watts? Are you kidding? Really? That would have been the effect in that day and age. But, but our God is not a respecter of persons or of origins. He doesn't care where you've come from. He doesn't care whatever scenario you've come out of. You know, I think um, of a Christian man that I know uh, whose father was abusive to him. And uh, for many, many years in his upbringing, his father would physically and verbally and emotionally abuse him. He was abused for many years and it engendered in this man a lot of anger and a lot of wrath toward his father. And when this man uh, grew up himself and became a father, he was scared. He was really scared. He knew of the anger and the wrath that was in him and he was scared that he would one day treat his children the way he had been treated by his father. God's message to a man like that is so clear. It is that you are not your father. 
You are not your Father. Your origins, where you've come from, the home you've come from, that doesn't dictate who you will become. And so whether you come from Nazareth or Bethlehem, Los Angeles, wherever it is, God is no respecter of origins. He cares about what you're going to do from here on out. He's no respecter of origins. That's precisely why Jesus was born in lowly Bethlehem and not mighty Jerusalem. That's precisely why Jesus came from a good-for-nothing town in Nazareth. It's because that God can redeem our places of origin. Some of the people I respect most come from broken families, from broken neighborhoods, and they've, they've got every reason to be ashamed of their heritage or of what took place in their home. But they know that their identity is not derived from their upbringing. That God is in the business of redeeming where they've come from. So this Christmas, we're all going somewhere for Christmas. Many of us are going home. We're going to our families where we grew up. This Christmas, whether you are going back to a home that you're proud of, that was a godly and a loving home, or whether you're going back to a home that you're fearful of, that you're intimidated by, that you're angry toward, disappointed at, wherever you're going, know that God is in the business of redeeming your origin. He's sending you back for a purpose and for a reason. And maybe it is to let the presence of Jesus in your life make an impact on your family. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was from a good-for-nothing town. She had no money, but God showed this woman great favor. And she was quick, very quick to thank Him for it. Notice what it says in Luke 1. This is the Magnificat in Latin. This is the song of Mary. She says, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy is on those who fear Him. From generation to generation. Verse 52. He's put down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich He sent away empty. He's helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Three times in the span of this song, Mary's emphasizing that she came from humble origins. Meekness. Humility. She was a lowly maidservant. And He exalted her up. He filled her. He put her on a place where no woman from Nazareth had been before. Henceforth, many call her blessed. God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of origins. Wherever you've come from, He can redeem where you've come. And He can bring the light of Christ back into your place of origin. And I urge you to do that this Christmas season. That's the first woman we're taking a look at. Mary, the insignificant woman. The second woman is this. Elizabeth, the hurting woman. Elizabeth, the hurting woman. And this is a painting by Rembrandt of St. Elizabeth. A beautiful painting. Um, uh, actually, excuse me, this, this was not by Rembrandt. This was, uh, I'm forgetting the, the uh, artist's name now, but I'll, I'll recall it probably later. The next painting is of Rembrandt. But this is St. Elizabeth. Uh, this is the woman who bore John the Baptist. But before she did, in the Christmas story, she is the hurting woman whom God notices. Take a look at Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. It says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, 
a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. You know, it's it's very hard to put the significance of verse 7 into perspective. Um, We see there that Elizabeth was barren. And all of us, we identify, we understand what that means. But it's hard for us in our 21st century day and age to understand just how significant a statement like that was in Jesus' day and age. You see, um, in the Bible period of time, in, in biblical times, a woman who was barren was a woman who was considered disfavored by God. She was considered to be someone or her husband who had sinned against God, who had transgressed God's law in some way, shape, or form. And because of that transgression, because of that sin, that God had somehow caused barrenness to fall upon her. You look at Rachel in way back in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 32, in which Rachel's crying out saying, kill me if I can't have children, she says to her husband. If I can't have children, I'd rather die. I know a little bit about um, this uh, wrestling with barrenness. I've had some friends who have wrestled with it. In particular, my pastor wrestled with this. Uh, as a kid, as a child, and as a teenager, I had a pastor, uh, Rich Kundal. Uh, he's still there today. He's been uh, pastoring now for over 30 years in this church. It's a wonderful testimony of faithfulness. And he and his wife, Lori, he was my youth pastor for a time and then became the pastor of the church. Um, it was well known throughout the church that, uh, that they were trying to have kids. And years went by and they could not get pregnant. And he was very open about it. Uh, I, I was amazed at that. Um, it was uh, remarkable how he would share the struggle and, and the pain and the testimony. Uh, that that had developed in them. Um, but he shared a lot about the hurt and, 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 and just the emotional toil, uh, toll that it, that it took upon him and his wife. Um, but God blessed them. That in the midst of all of that uh, trying, they, they decided later on in their life to adopt. And they ended up adopting four children, um, beautiful kids who are now all grown. Uh, one of them's at Viola. Uh, the others are teenagers. And uh, they were a little bit younger than me, so I didn't know them very well. But it was beautiful for our church to watch this couple, the pastor of our church, grapple with this issue of barrenness and yet come full circle and adopt these four beautiful kids. But in the midst of all that, in the midst of that experience in Pastor Rich's life, um, he grew to identify a need in the Christian church. He found out that there was really no resources to help those who were struggling with this issue of barrenness. And so he actually went on to get a doctorate from Western Seminary. And the title of his uh, dissertation, his Doctor of Ministry uh, final paper was this, Shepherding the Lambless Sheep, a Pastor's Guide to Ministry with Infertile Couples. And Pastor Rich developed an entire program of sorts for pastors and churches to implement, to deal with those who were dealing with infertility. And I know it's being used in churches across the nation to this day. It's a wonderful testimony of Rich's life and how God's brought him through so much. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, 
Rich admitted um, often that they wrestled with the very same questions that you and I would wrestle with if we were dealing with this issue. At first, it was issues of, is this because of me? Is this because of you? What, what, what are we have a, is there a physical issue going on here? But then there were other questions that continued to haunt him and his wife, Lori. They started to ask the, the questions of, did we do something wrong? Is God somehow punishing us for something we've done? These were questions that undoubtedly, undoubtedly haunted Elizabeth and Zacharias. You see, in the Old Testament, leading up to the time of Christ, barrenness was considered a result of sin. And it wasn't just barrenness that was looked upon with reproach. The culture also, the people of that day, also derided parents whose children were born with physical abnormalities or other physical problems. Was that true? Or was that just a figment of the culture's imagination? Was God really punishing them? Or was this something that they had misinterpreted? You know, when Jesus came, He cleared some things up. And I can say today, as we look upon this issue of Elizabeth dealing with barrenness, that neither God nor His Word encouraged such cultural reactions. In fact, when Jesus came, He definitively put the matter to rest. He came up to a blind man in the Gospel of John, and this is what happened. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, as Jesus passed by, He saw a man who was blind from birth. And His disciples asked Jesus, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or His parents that He was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in Him. And Jesus healed him. The story goes on to say, Neither this man nor his parents sinned that this man was born blind, but that the works of God should be revealed. And what is that work? It was the healing power of Christ in that instance. It is exactly what God needs to do in the life of a person dealing with any affliction, whether it's barrenness or blindness, whether it's any tribulation or affliction, that the works of God may be revealed. That is the tribulation's purpose. That is the affliction's purpose. The Scripture speaks of it time and time and time again. It's exactly what God also did with an old and barren couple like Zacharias and Elizabeth. He gave them a miracle in the birth of their son, John, the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. Their barrenness was used by God for a time to demonstrate the works of God. It wasn't a matter of sin like the culture supposed. In fact, Luke says just the opposite. He says in verse 6 of Luke chapter 1, he says that they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. The fact that Luke mentions that is indication that he was well aware of what the culture thought. See, Luke inserts this comment, an editorial comment if you will, in verse 6 to indicate that this had nothing to do with sin. This had nothing to do with punishment. But as Jesus said in John 9, that the works of God may be revealed. That is why it happened. God notices. He notices. 
He is the God who notices. He notices a couple who's crying out for a baby. He notices the person who's calling for a job. He notices the one who's asking for healing. He notices the one who seeks vindication and justice. He notices the person who says, God, why is this happening to me? And He's asking you and I to trust Him. To not wallow in self-pity or loathing, but to trust Him. To believe the Word when it says that His promises are not slack concerning you. That it just may be that your present time of affliction, be it barrenness or any other tribulation, that this present time of affliction might be just experienced so that the mighty works of God could be revealed. Amen? What's coming next? We don't know. But if you're dealing with any affliction today, I say on the authority of God's Word, it is because the mighty works of God are about to be made evident in it. And in the day that you are helpless, let the Spirit's settled peace, let the Holy Spirit's settled peace come upon you as He whispers in your ear, just wait for the mighty work of God. Just wait for the mighty work of God. It's coming. It's coming. And it came for Elizabeth. And she was quick to thank God for it. Luke chapter 1, verse 23. And so it was, as soon as the days of Zacharias' service was complete, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth's years of helpless questioning, of shame, were erased when the mighty work of God was revealed. Her reproach among the culture was removed when God finally answered her prayer. And in keeping with her patient righteousness, her steadiness, she was careful to give God all the glory and the credit. She thanked Him for taking away her reproach among the eyes of the people. Interesting too that the Bible says she hid herself for five months. Um, you might wonder, well, why would she do that? Why would, uh, why would she hide herself um, for five months? Well, uh, our culture uh, has reasons for hiding a pregnancy. Um, my wife and I hid a pregnancy for a while. We hid the pregnancy of our first child. And the reason we hid it for a time, uh, we didn't want to tell anyone, was because in our family there had been a long history of miscarriages. And so we, we hid it to kind of uh, have that safety moment, if you will, so that we didn't want to announce uh, the birth and then to have a, a travesty later. Um, though now, I, I think as, as we've continued to have children, we've grown more comfortable letting people know early. And, and this child that we're pregnant with now, we let uh, folks know the earliest um, because we trust our church and our church family. Um, to care for us and love us no matter what happened. Um, but the, that would be a reason why we might hide a pregnancy in this day and age. The same was true really in, in biblical times. But more importantly, John the Baptist, it is said to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, that no razor was to come upon his head, that he was not to have strong drink, uh, alcohol that is. You see, John the Baptist was to be consecrated as a Nazarite. And if you look at Numbers chapter 6 in the Old Testament, 
or Judges chapter 13, it talks about in number 6 and in Judges 13, it speaks of how a woman, a pregnant woman, is to conduct herself during a pregnancy in which her son is going to become a Nazarite. That is a man who no razor comes upon his head. He's totally consecrated to the Lord. No alcohol is to touch his lips. And among the, among the requirements of a woman having a child who was to take the vow of a Nazarite was that this woman also could not drink, that this woman could not engage in any of the festivities uh, or the, you know, enjoy the parties and, the, and some of the drinking at the weddings and different social gatherings. And so Elizabeth literally removed herself for five months so that she could, one, demonstrate that she was in fact pregnant to the culture, which would have immediately derided her at the start, but two, so that she could remove herself from some of the festivities taking place in and around her social group. She removed herself so that she could obey the Lord. So she could thank God, properly recognize Him and what He had done. God took note of that. He noticed Mary, a woman of great insignificance. Insignificance in money. Insignificance in origins. He noticed Elizabeth, a woman who was hurting, deeply hurting, not having a child to her name. And yet God blessed her and she responded with praise and with obedience. And finally, God noticed Anna. And here is that Rembrandt painting of Anna. It's a little difficult to see there, but um, this woman Anna we find in Luke chapter 2. She was described in Luke 2 as a prophetess. Luke 2, 36-38. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel. She was of great age and she lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instance, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. We don't know much of this woman, Anna. Uh, I spoke about her a number of years ago in one of our uh, Christmas messages. I, I believe it was about four years ago now. But we don't know much of this woman, But Luke does indicate that she was a prophetess. These are the only three verses mentioned of her in all of Scripture. Luke indicates that she was a a prophetess. And uh, that might seem a little strange to some of you. You might think, okay, what what does that mean? Well, actually, there were many women uh, who exercised the gift of prophecy in Scripture. You have Miriam in Exodus 15. You have Deborah acting as both a leader and a prophet in Judges 4 and 5. You have Huldah in 2 Kings 22. And you have Isaiah's wife in Isaiah chapter 8 exercising uh, a prophetic uh, office. You also have Philip's daughters in Acts chapter 21. The daughters of the evangelist Philip exercising the gift of prophecy. All of them prophetesses, female prophets. Her family origin is also significant. Her father's name, Fanuel, can likely be traced back to a city in the Old Testament known as Peniel or Penuel. It was a city named by Jacob. And it was the place where Jacob wrestled with God. 
It's the place where Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis chapter 32. And in response to that wrestling with the angel of the Lord, who I believe there was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, in response to wrestling with the Lord in Genesis 32, Jacob named the place Peniel or Penuel, which means I've seen God face to face. Anna's father, Fanuel, likely came from that area. I've seen God face to face. And so also, Fanuel's daughter, Anna, would see the Christ child face to face. But most striking, most striking, no doubt, in Luke's description of Anna is surely the years of her widowhood. It says in Luke chapter 2 that she was of great age. She had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. She was married for seven years and her husband died. And she was a widow for 84 years. Assuming she was married as a, as a teenager, which was common in that day and age, let's say 15 or 16. She was married for seven years, so 15 to about age 22. And then for 84 years... She was widowed. 84 and 22, 106 years of age perhaps this woman was. 106 years old. A widow of 84 years. Some of you know what that's like to live alone. To be without a husband or a wife. To be a widow or a widower. My, uh, my grandmother, Ellen, is, uh, she's 95 years old. And my grandfather died some 12 years ago. And she's been uh, a widow during this time of 12 years. In fact, she had a first husband who also died. And so she is a widow twice over. And my grandmother uh, has been living now for, for 12 years as, as a widower. Uh, as a widow, excuse me. And uh, I just saw her this past Thanksgiving. A few days after Thanksgiving, we were, we were driving through uh, her town up in uh, Yuba City. And we stopped on by and we, we got the kids out of the car because we really, really wanted to spend some time with her. We don't know um, how much time she has left. She's, she's healthy but weak. And uh, my grandmother just, we, I brought her McDonald's by request. And uh, she loves the, uh, the sausage McMuffin with egg. And... Uh, and I brought her a McDonald's breakfast and we sat around the table and just reminisced. And uh, she looked at me at a couple points during the conversation and said, Neil, I, I don't know why I'm still here. I'm 95. I don't know why I'm still here. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. All I do is pray. All I do is pray. And she told me that she prays for me every day. That's all she does. That's all this woman did. Day and night. She didn't depart from the temple. But she served God with fastings and with prayers. She served the Lord in the temple. Ministering as a widow to any that would walk toward her. Praying over anyone who would come and needing assistance. After 84 years of quiet faithfulness, 
This woman was rewarded. God took note of her loneliness. Anna, the lonely woman. He took note of her loneliness and He gave her the greatest gift of all. He let her see the Christ child. Verse 38 of of, uh, Luke chapter 2. It says, "...and coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem." She saw Jesus, the child, in the temple right then and right there. And now a woman who had previously been prophesying of the coming of Messiah, the coming of Messiah, she could now say, I've seen Him. I held Him. Her years of loneliness rewarded. God notices. He notices Mary in her insignificance. He notices Elizabeth and the hurt of being barren. The hurt of not having a child. He notices Anna. Her loneliness, but also her quiet, quiet faithfulness in praying, in fasting and prayers like my grandmother. He notices your hurts. He notices when you feel insignificant or worthless. He notices when you feel all alone. He takes note of all people, rich and poor, young and old, Mary, a teenager, Elizabeth, middle-aged, Anna, very old. He takes note of both men and women. He sent Jesus for every single one of us. That's why Jesus came. That's why the story of Christmas really is our story. You know, in closing, um, many of you know that our Haiti team is right now in Port-au-Prince. Right this very moment. I have some pictures to show you, actually. Uh, Here's a picture of them praying on the new land on which the orphanage and the school will one day be built. There's Doug in the back and Monica. I believe they have uh, Santa hats on. They're, they're playing some worship there. Let's continue. And then there's uh, Doug, uh, another man, I believe, from Crossline Church, tying up the kids, having some fun at the orphanage. Monica on the left. There's Carrie with some of the kids who are holding masks in front of their uh, faces. And there's Doug, again, playing worship, I believe, there at the, at the boys' and girls' home. And finally, this one. Uh, I don't know if you can see this, uh, but uh, the little picture that this boy is holding is a, a picture of Zach and Jake Toppinster, uh, boys in our church, uh, who gave, apparently their family is the one who gave this young man a gift, this young boy a gift. And the boy is holding up a picture of Jake and Zach as, as if to say thank you to them for the gift uh, that they had brought. And I know many of you made gifts and prepared gifts for the children. But today, today in Haiti, uh, the team is doing something else. Uh, They're not going to the orphanage. Uh, Well, uh, they may be going to the orphanage today. And they may be stopping by the boys' home again. Uh, But today, in fact, as we speak, um, they're likely at a cemetery in Haiti. And they're ministering to women just like uh, this one. Just like these gals. You see, these are. Uh, this picture represents uh, some of the Haitian women that can be found in the cemeteries at Port-au-Prince. Um, these women live there, and there are children who live there. And I know that Mike and Carrie, every time they go to Haiti, Mike stops by the cemetery where these women and children live. 